in the beginning of Revelation, Jesus appears in a vision to John on Patmos. And he says to him, I'm going to show you something. You're going to be fully awake, fully cognizant, but I'm going to show it to you as though it's real. It's a vision. And I want you to write down everything you see. And then I want you to write seven additional letters to specific churches that exist in real time in the first century. And I want you to write all those seven letters on one scroll. And I want you through the postal system to have the scroll rolled up and I want you to send it to one church at a time. Send it to the first one on the list. And I want you to have a reader in that church stand up and read all seven letters at one time to church that Sunday on the Lord's Day. Not just a letter to them. I want them to hear the letter I'm writing to all the other churches too because there might be something in there that would benefit them from hearing. Because if I bless it in your church, I bless it in all churches. And if I'm correcting you for it, it's correctable in all churches. And after they're done, send it to the next church. They'll do the same. And the next and the next and the next until that gets to all seven churches. I want them to know that I see what they're going through. I want them to know that I am not up in heaven looking through a lens. I am with them. I'm the one that stands among the seven lampstands. I'm standing among my seven churches. I'm holding them in my hand and I'm wearing shoes that look like they've just come through a glowing furnace because I've walked through the furnace just like they're walking through the furnace. I want them to know I have not forgotten about them, but I see them, but I have something very specific I want you to tell them. Now, you and I did not get the benefit of having Jesus come and speak to us about Revelation. We didn't have the benefit of having Jesus come this morning and tell us about things that are going on now and things that are about to happen that could happen at any time. He decided instead of doing that, he'd rather you have the Bible. He would rather you and me have the book of Revelation, and that's the way he wants you and me to seek him. Not through just the news, not through just our imagination, not through all kinds of extra biblical things by themselves. They're all good and fine, but if you don't have the Bible as your foundation, you won't interpret them correctly. He wants you and me to have the Bible. He wants you and me to have these seven letters. Pastor, why are you wasting my time on Father's Day by having me listen to three letters that were written to three churches that I'm not a part of that existed 1,900 years ago? What does that have to do with me? So glad you asked. It has everything to do with you because God expected the other six churches who weren't the, the one that, that the letter was, he wanted that, all those seven churches to listen to even the letters that weren't written to them. He wanted them to hear all of it because Yes, there's something specific in it for each individual church, but he also said there is value in hearing how I assess and evaluate and speak to all of my churches all over the world forever. I don't change. And if it's relevant to Laodicea, it's relevant to you. And if it's relevant to Philadelphia, it's relevant to you. And if it's relevant to Sardis, if I'm telling them you're doing something you shouldn't do and I'm judging you because of it, the letters all in the same way. Anybody in all of history who has ears that work, it would be wise for you to listen and to take note. My parents always reminded my younger brother and sister to watch the mistakes that I made and don't repeat them. I was an awesome example. I tell my team all the time, I'll sit them down during our team meetings. I'll be like, listen, let me tell you about some massive mistake I made as a pastor this week. 
Not because I need them to tell me, oh, it's okay. I say, I don't want to, one of my statements I'm known for around the office is don't waste any landmines. If I stepped on something and I handled a situation long and I, wrong and I brought, broke, you know, blew a leg off there, I don't want anybody who's following me to step in the same spot. Of course, now that I think about that, it's not like they reset the landmine. I guess if I, it's, not a good, it's not a good example. But I don't want them to walk down the same trail that I did if it's a bad trail. I'm saying, listen, learn from me. If you do this, bad things will happen. The fool says, well, I'm not the one that stepped on the landmine. Maybe if I step on it, something different will happen. The wise person says, I'm going to, even though that wasn't me and I didn't go down that trail, that reinforces why I shouldn't go down there and I'm going to steer clear of it. In the same way, when you do something the right way and good results come, it's good to follow that example. These letters are written to us second, but they're written to these first century churches first. So we're going to read three of them this morning. And like Pastor James said last week, we're going to try and get into that first century headspace. For us to get the most out of this today, we've got to understand a tiny bit about what was going on in those cities and in the churches that were in those cities. Three letters we're going to read today from Revelation chapter 3. And in a second, I'm also going to have some of my friends come. And we'll have three different people read those three letters. And all I'm going to do is pull one thought out of each of those letters for us to apply. So Sardis, Philadelphia, Greatest city in the history. No, I'm just kidding. I'm from that area, so I'm a little, you know, not the Philadelphia overseas, but the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. I'm from that area, so I'm a little partial. You got Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now, if you've been, some of our veteran Christians, we have a few of you here, I know. You probably are pretty familiar with Laodicea, the hot and the cold, the lukewarm. I'm also pretty sure most of us have been taught that completely wrong, and I want to try and fix that this morning. I don't mean that arrogantly. I just mean that... There's a way it usually gets taught by pastors and we leverage this to beat people over the head and we miss the point of the whole. We hear it through our century's ears, not the first century's ears. A little bit that was going on in Sardis. Sardis, 600 years before John writes this letter, so like 500 BC-ish, they were probably the most powerful city in the ancient world. But over the next 600 years, they experienced rapid decline infrastructure was starting to fall apart architecture was starting to fall apart they had declined to a relic one historian said proudly boasting on its former reputation in other words they were in decline but they wouldn't admit it to themselves things were falling apart but they still thought they were the vacation destination um they were perched atop a high acropolis it had perpendicular walls surrounding the city so it was kind of known for that They also had this false idea that they were pretty safe being on top of a hill. They had some guards that they situated around their city because, you know, if you could get up there, you could conquer them pretty easily. But they figured we're so far up and we have such high walls, no one will ever come and destroy our city. But uh, twice over in that 600 period uh, of history, 600 year period of history, they actually were infiltrated and destroyed. And both times it happened the same way. Both times one of the enemies took one person one of their really good climbers. And they waited until they weren't paying attention and they got, had a little too much to drink up top. And they found a vulnerable spot on the wall. And they sent one climber up the wall. He got inside the wall, opened the gates from the inside without anybody knowing, and the city was ransacked and destroyed twice in 600 years. And because of that, the Sardesians had developed a proverb that loosely translated into English says this, To consider oneself secure and fail to remain alert is to court disaster. 
to think you're okay and everything's good and to slack off and watching your blind spots is to invite disaster into your life. So even in their decline, here's why they also were hesitant to admit that they were in decline. They were still wealthy. They, were still, they still had a really good economy because they had this 50,000 square foot, six-story high temple to the Roman god Artemis who was believed to have the special power of restoring the dead to life. So they worship a fake god because they think that god can bring dead people back to life. But we know there's only one god who has the power of bringing dead to life. So in short, they were in total denial of their true condition. They mistook their wealth for health and because of that they considered any changes to their way of life completely unnecessary that's what was going on in the city of sardis what's going on in the city of philadelphia um kind of business as usual they were very different from sardis sardis was this kind of aspirational historic city that was in decline but had a lot of wealth and had a lot of famous landmarks philadelphia was strategically positioned along the trade routes it was known for agriculture they called it the gateway to the east it benefited from a volcanic plain, which what volcanic plains are good for growing things. And so they had, a, they were, it grew grapes really well. So they had a thriving grape economy. They were hardworking, blue collar people, lived a pretty simple life there in Philadelphia. Here's what its reputation for. Philadelphia was right on a fault line. You know, a fault line is where earthquakes happen frequently. And Philadelphia was a city decimated um, by earthquakes twice in this time that John lived once. In a, most notably in AD 17, there was a massive earthquake that the epicenter was right there in Philadelphia. It leveled 12 other cities overnight. So here's a city that had been torn to rubble and rebuilt and torn to rubble and rebuilt. So they have a good economy, but they're right on a fault line. There's a lot of earthquakes. And if you remember from last week, the Roman government to try and extinguish Christianity started spreading rumors that the Christians were responsible for the earthquakes because the Roman gods were mad at them. And the only way to shut down the church was for all the neighbors to rat out the Christians. And also the other rule that the Romans made was that no matter what charge a Christian stood count of, when he came before the judge, no matter whether they were convicted or acquitted, that trial could not end and they would not be exonerated unless they renounced their faith as well. So even if they're saying, okay, we find you not guilty, however, before we can release you, you need to renounce and deny the name of Jesus on your life or you'll be killed. This was happening all over the Roman Empire and many times, as we learned last week, many times even if the Christians under that intense persecution renounced their faith, they were martyred anyway. So Philadelphia, there's a lot going on here. Um, Laodicea, uh, it's the third city, uh, it was really known for for primarily uh, uh, one thing, and it was almost, it was, it was called the almost perfect city. The almost perfect city. It was known, and this will resonate with a lot of you, it was a medical center. They were known for their medical university, and they were like on the cutting edge of pharmaceutical research. Uh, there was a lot of disease that spread quickly, and they were starting to get more advanced in the way that the, you know, the ancient culture used medicine. And in Laodicea, they had very advanced medical research facilities where they were on the cutting edge of developing multi-symptom medicines. And so uh, you can imagine, if you get good at medicine, pharmaceuticals is pretty good money. So, I mean, back in the ancient day, people would pony up anything to get medical training and or to be able to have medicine to combat diseases. Disease they all, which the Roman government also blamed on Christians. The gods are mad, so they're sending disease and sending earthquakes. Let's exterminate the Christians and life will be better. 
Uh, Laodicea was known for one, uh, well, actually two proprietary drugs. One that they were really, history really gives them a lot of credit for was ISAV. Um, a lot of the disease that was spreading that day was through the eyes and going after eyesight. And they developed a pro- proprietary multi-symptom ISAV they were really famous for. Um, so the city was incredibly wealthy. They were flush with cash. Um, because not only when, when you have a lot of money, the whole banking industry moved there. Lots of other businesses attached to the medical industry moved there. The city was so wealthy that during one of those massive earthquakes, when the city was leveled, they were the only city that was able to completely rebuild itself in 100% cash without borrowing a penny from the Romans. They had that much surplus left in their city coffers that they could rebuild everybody's stuff debt-free. They were that wealthy that they felt like they didn't need anything else. They were almost perfect. They would have been completely perfect except for one thing. They had absolutely no water source. None. They had no way of getting clean, potable water, so they had to pipe it in from one of the nearby cities, and they had to pipe it a long way. So to six miles to the north, you had Hierapolis. They were, on the other hand, known for their water, but they were known for their hot springs. So they had a good relationship with Laodicea. Their hot springs were known for their medicinal power, so you could go to Laodicea and get your meds, and you could go up to Hierapolis and sit in those hot springs, and if you were sick, you could find healing there, but that wasn't the good drinking water. So they had hot water they could get from Hierapolis, but Colossae had the cold water. Colossae was nearby, and they were known for their cold springs, and they had the ability for cold, refreshing drinking water. So they had to kind of build good networks with either Hierapolis to the north or Colossae to get the water that they needed. It was almost perfect city. So these three letters are going to three very different geographical centers. That's like writing, you know, you might write one letter if you wrote to somebody that lived in Dundalk and another letter to somebody that lived in Lutherville and yet another letter to someone that lived way out in Fairmont, West Virginia. Different geographies, different things going on. But what was the same for all Christians? What was the same for all Christians is there was persecution because all these three geographies were right smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire in the province they called Asia. I mentioned a little bit of some of the persecution they were going through governmentally. You know, the government hated them. You know, we're under the rule of Domitian, the successor of Nero. Hated Christians, hated everything they stood for, saw them as destabilizing to their power. And so they unleashed everything that they could. They declared a day where you had to worship the emperor. He, like James said last week, one day he just woke up and decided, he was a nutcase. He just woke up one day and decided, you know what, I'm God. Everybody should be worshiping me. So we're going to have the emperor's day and everybody needs to worship me or they break the law and they get punished. And Romans were good at punishing, crucifying and martyring and all those other kinds of things. We're going to make laws that are going to make it difficult for Christians to thrive. We're going to use the rumor mill to blame them for everything. Um, Now, there are other religious groups, Domitian decided, like the Jews. But I'm going to give them an exemption. I'm going to let them remain exempt from having to follow all the Roman laws and rules. And the Christians said, that's not fair. And he said, too bad. (laughs) So they've got persecution from the government. They've got persecution, as we heard, from their unbelievers because all their neighbors are saying, well, man, I don't like these earthquakes. I'm scared of disease. I don't want my house to fall apart. The government's saying it's the Christians' fault. I believe in the gods, and the gods must be angry at Christians, so I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open, and I'm going to start snitching and ratting out all the Christians, telling the Romans about them so they can get drug away and be put to death, and then my life will be better. They also went through persecution from the Jews, believe it or not. There was, the Jews found it very offensive because the Jews said, we are God's only people, not the Christians, just us. We're the true people of God, but the Christians said not true. 
we are inwardly right with God. We are made inward, even if we don't have the same ethnic heritage as you do. Through the cross of Christ, Jew and Gentile, Greek, you know, slave and free, we can all have relationship with God. We are also, we are also the children of God. And the Jews found that so offensive that they began also ratting them out and persecuting them. They started excommuting people. I'm talking about excommunicating. Families cutting off families, saying, if you're going to go to that church, you're no longer considered part of our family. And the Christian's response to that was said, then you're not a real Jew because no true Jew would ever persecute a Christian. That's un-Jew-like. In fact, the Christians started coming up with this term, that's anti-Christ. That's satanic in nature. To try to put to death Christians, no true Jew would do that. And so hence you have this terminology in these letters talking about the Jews as being the synagogues of Satan. So just like we did last week, we're trying to get you in that first century headspace. Each of these three cities had a church in it. That's what their city was experiencing. That's what their church was experiencing. Different things going on culturally, but the churches were all facing some sort of massive governmental, religious, and social persecution. And so these letters uh, came about in a way where like the pastor or the group leader of that particular church would say, listen, we have a special gathering on the Lord's Day this week. I received a scroll from the Apostle John, who we all know we've been praying for. He took dictation from Jesus Christ himself. The resurrected Jesus appeared to John. And he wrote a letter to Echo. He wrote a letter to us. And we're going to read it out loud this Sunday. He wrote a letter to some of our other partner churches. And we're going to hear all their letters too. But we need you all to be here. We need you to be really ready to listen in. Because Jesus has something special, uniquely personal to share with each one of us. And so with that in mind, I want to invite my three friends to come. Hadassah and Wes and Doris, if they would come and join me here on the platform. We're going to read uh, to you. These letters, you're welcome to follow along in your Bible. We'll be reading from the New Living Translation. The bulk of this morning is this exercise right here. Because I do want you to go home feeling more confident about reading Revelation. So this whole exercise helps us not be so intimidated by a pretty intimidating book. I want us to appreciate and bond with our Christians, brothers and sisters who lived 1900 years before we did and we want to learn from their successes and their failures. But also we want the Holy Spirit to put us under his magnifying glass this morning and saying, God, those areas in my life where you're trying to encourage me, I receive your encouragement today. Those areas of my life where you're trying to warn me, I'm going to take my fingers out of my ears and lower my pride and I'm not above correction. I'm teachable and I'm moldable in your hands today. And those areas where he's trying to correct us, we want to be like that child who says, I hear you, Dad. I hear you, Dad. I am sorry. Help me get back on the right track. So let's listen. Hadassah is going to read the first letter to us. This is the message to the church in Sardis. Mm-hmm. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the seven, sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone who, who with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's, he is saying to the churches. Thank you, Hudassa. Thank you so much. I'm going to invite Wes to come, and he's going to read to us the message to the church in Philadelphia. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look. I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say that they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you've obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them a new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And Doris is going to come, and she'll read the, the third and final letter for this morning, the message to the church in Laodicea. Thank you, Doris. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one with the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Mm. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Thank you, Doris. Thank you. Thank you to all my readers. I really appreciate that this morning. Um, you have just experienced as close as we created, we could recreate it the way uh, Jesus intended you and me to be able to hear these, these letters. And so... Um, there's so much in there, and I hope that understanding a little of the geographical background of the cities made some of those phrases uh, pop 
a little more for you and maybe understand what would have meant something to them. When I read about, hey, I have eye ointment for you, you know, <laughs> to the church, it doesn't mean anything to me really until now. <laughs> He's saying, you think you have the tool to solve all your own problems. That's why you live a life of ease. But there's problems you don't even know you have and medicine you don't even know that you have that only I have. You know, it starts to make more sense. So let's just briefly, I, I couldn't unpack each of these letters. A lot of other pastors who teach through these take a week or two on each letter. Um, we don't have a week or two uh, allotted this time through Revelation to do that, but maybe let me just offer you um, one meaningful thought from each of these letters to apply. Here's the big idea. If I had to try and summarize maybe all seven letters, here's my attempt at it. Here's, I took a swing at it. For Christians, persecution is common. But I'm a Christian facing no persecution. What kind of life are you living? Are you so much like the world that there's no opposition to you? That's a problem, Jesus would say to us. You're trying to blend in. You're trying to shrink back. Persecution is common. It accompanies Christianity. Responding blessedly to persecution is what's uncommon. I think a lot of us feel like, well, persecution for Christians, that's uncommon. That's either for the radicals or for the oppressed. But me, the nominal, middle-of-the-road, average Christian, persecution should be uncommon. If I'm experiencing persecution, it must mean God's mad or that Jesus doesn't love me or it must be because of this demonized world. It's because of Hollywood. It's because of the Republicans or it's because of the Democrats or it's because of the, the, whites, the white males or the non-white female. You know, we, we demonize different groups. The message of these letters is very clear and plain. Persecution for Christians is common, but responding in a way that God can bless us when persecution comes our way is uncommon. So let's take one thought from each letter, from Sardis, number one in your notes. Here's one thought. There's more, but here's one. As opposition towards identifying as a Christian increases, and it will, you'll do one of two things. You'll either hold fast to Jesus or you'll try to blend in with the world. Whenever you and I face any level of tension, discomfort, opposition, loss, unease, diciness, because of our faith, because of who we say we are in Christ, you're going to do one of two things. You will either hold firm to your beliefs, you will hold firm to Christ and remain loyal to Him, or you'll find an easier path an easier way to skirt around the conflict, to find a middle road. You'll rationalize, you'll justify, you will shrink back to try and blend in with the culture. All of Revelation hinges on this idea. So, you know, the church at Sardis, of all seven letters, this is the toughest one. They come under the most rebuke. They are not commended really for anything. There's no encouragement here. We followed the structure last week. I won't bring that back out today, but it comes under the most harsh denunciation of all the letters. Let me try and summarize in my words what Jesus is saying to Sardis. He says, you're living off, you church people, you Christians, you're living off your good reputation for having good teaching, big offerings, lots of church growth. You've got lots of relationships in the community. You've got billboards. Every waiter in every restaurant knows your church. Every government official knows your church, and they all think well of you. Big deal. I know that when I look under the hood, there's nothing there. 
It's all an act. Sure, you look great on the outside, but you're nearly dead on the inside. And the biggest problem is you think you have it all. You think you've got all the wealth because you're gazillionaires. (laughs) You think you've got all the wealth. You think you have it all. But compared to what you could have, you're just existing. And what's sad, you don't even know it. One little thief could come in and ruin your whole life, and you're asleep at the wheel. You are more concerned about your reputation than your substance. You're less con- you are so concerned that you would be offensive to some unbeliever in your city that you've become so much like your city that there's absolutely no differentiation between you and an unbeliever. Nothing different, except for you go to church on Sunday. Call yourself a Christian. But you are impotent. You're inert. You just blend in. You're not changing anybody or anything. So how does that happen to a Christian? How do you get saved and become, what do I mean by saved? You accept and you believe and you confess that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. You accept payment for your sins through his death on the cross. And you surrender to his ultimate leadership in your life. And when that happens, the Bible says you will become radically converted. You'll be transformed. There will be proof of ongoing transformation on the person of who you are that comes through the power of Jesus alive inside of you. How can a person who claims that as their experience turn into one of the Sardesian Christians who is just living an act? Growing like wildfire. Their attendance numbers were great. They had a good reputation in the community. They also had no opposition in the community in a time of persecution. And Jesus says, that's a problem. There's not enough evidence for you being a Christian to convict you of anything. How does someone turn into that? And have you become that person? The Bible says if you've become that person, you will listen to me this morning and fiercely deny that it's you. Two ways that it happens and one pace that it happens. Two ways it happens. One is legalism. The other is dualism. You become this way through legalism. Legalism is this. Legalism says, because of my reputation, because of how I appear, because of how often I go to church, because of how much I tithe, because of how much I give to the vision fund, because of how many teams I serve on, because of what I like on Facebook, because of the music I play in my house, because I don't go to rated R movies, because I don't let my kids watch SpongeBob. I am, I am, because of my reputation, I am owed heaven as a prize. My performance is what matters. How I appear is what matters. And that is what earns me status in God's kingdom, my reputation. That's legalism, a set of behaviors earns me good standing with God. Well, I'm not that person. I I know better than that. Well, let's check. Are any of these things true about you? When life doesn't go the way you planned, does your prayer life go to the toilet? Do you attend church less frequently? Do you get angry and bitter at God? Do you start feeling sorry for yourself? Do you start making long rants on Facebook about how bad we should feel for you because you got up and stubbed your toe this morning? That's legalism. You're not following Jesus for Jesus. You're following him because you think he owes you an easy life. That's legalism. If I behaved this way, then I should get good results. And I'm behaving this way, and the good results aren't coming. God, your system is broken. That's not his system. That's a system you made up and assigned to God. 
Whenever you slip on a banana peel and life doesn't go the way you want, do you start saying, Jesus, you must not love me? Nobody loves me. You don't love me. I need you to remind me every day that you love me. Because my life's not going the way I want. You must not love me. That's legalism. Because you're saying, I'm performing the way I'm supposed to, and I don't feel loved, so the system must be broken. That's not the system. It's a system you made up, you assigned yourself to, and you assigned it to God. Or when things go wrong, do you say, well, man, if Hollywood, if those liberals out in Hollywood weren't in power, my life wouldn't be suffering the way that it is right now. If those politicians, it's this whole corrupt government. By God, it's those Republicans. It's those Democrats. It's those people who vote. It's those people who don't vote. It's the protesters. It's the pacifists. It's because of them. It's because of them that I, my life is miserable. Legalism. It's everybody else but me because I'm performing. I voted against Trump. I voted for Trump. I didn't vote at all. I protested. I was silent. I told all my Facebook friends who think like I do how I felt. And my life is still bad. It's because, no, friend, that's not the system. That's legalism. Or, it's not legalism. There's another thing called dualism. What's dualism? Sardis was guilty of both. Dualism is where you isolate Sunday from the rest of your week. You behave much differently today than you do the rest of the week. You talk different, dress different, behave different, listen to different music, change your routine, think about God a little bit more, and the rest of your week looks totally different, and you're totally fine with that deal. That thinking says this, listen, I do the God thing on Sunday. I get to church usually somewhere between 10.40 and 11.10. I make an effort, not as much as I do to get to work on time, not as much as I do to get to the game on time, but I get there. I can slack with God a little bit. The church understands, and if they say anything about it, they're being too harsh and judgmental. They don't understand my world. I don't want my boss to have to think that way, but my God, he, he's a little more gracious to me than that. And I believe in God. I, you know, I'm not into raising my hands. I'm not into singing with the songs. That talking about tithing and offering, that's all overkill. Serving on a team, you know, that's for the people who are just don't have anything better to do. I have a lot of better things to do. That's all overkill Christianity. I'm just normal. Christianity, I'm going to do it. And you know what? It's really nobody else's business. My relationship with God is commonly held. It's privately held. I'm sorry, it's privately held. It's between me and him. It's nobody else's business. Anybody who tries to step on that, I'm just going to write them off and marginalize them. And I know they'll miss me because of all I contribute to the church if I leave. Dualism. Dualism. That person thinks they have it all. That person thinks they have, they, there is nothing differentiating them from the world. They're not leading anybody to Jesus. There's no difference in their life. There's nothing to persecute or to celebrate. There's nothing. Well, pastor, how does a Christian get like that? Either legalism or dualism. It's not one seismic event that caused it. It's little tiny decisions over a long period of time. That's how culture changes. All of Revelation is about this. If I could summarize it, these, these letters are all about this. He's saying to each of these churches, Jesus is, you, when you accepted me, you became a citizen of heaven, but you also remained a citizen of Sardis, a citizen of Philadelphia, a citizen of Hartford County, a citizen of Essex, a citizen of Nottingham, of Parkville. If you are under the sound of my voice today and you consider yourself a Christian, you have a dual citizenship. You're involved, you're a citizen of two cities, the city of God and the city of the place where you live, in my case, Parkville. And what Revelation says is that at some time, if you're really living as you should with the city of God, the culture of the city of God will clash with the culture of your city. And what will you do then? 
City-shaped cultures, city-shaped behaviors, city-shaped attitudes and actions. And as a citizen of God, what Revelation says is if you're truly a citizen of mine, you will live in opposition to the culture of your city. And there's going to be tension. And what will you do in those moments? Revelation says one of two things. You'll either hold fast to me and defer to your citizenship of heaven, or you'll be ashamed and embarrassed to find the easy way out because you don't want to sacrifice any discomfort in the culture of your city. You have to decide now what you're going to do because he says you're already under persecution and it's going to get worse. It happens a little bit over time. Uh, Example, um, my grandparents' generation is different than mine. My grandparents grew up in the in the late 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Your grandparents may have grown up in different generations. Their generation was different in some ways. They were more thrifty than my generation. I mean, I, you know, they still have the same card table they've had since 1961. And I'm just like, why don't you go down to Costco and just buy another one? Because I don't need another one. My generation's a spend now generation, right? Here's another one. Morally speaking, I re- oh, man, I really got to hurry. Morally speaking, this is the most important of the three today anyway, so we'll, we'll, we'll land here. Um, Morally speaking, um, there's this common idea right now that's not even, like, it's not even taboo anymore to assume that if you're dating somebody, you're going to see each other naked before you get married. It's not even taboo. It's a common joke. I heard, I heard uh, one pastor recently tell a story. He was riding a bus home from a public place. This is within the last year. He was riding a bus home. He was at the public library. He was in, in an urban environment. He was riding the bus home, and uh, one lady got on the bus with a big Victoria's Secret bag. And another lady says to her, wow, do you treat yourself to you know, something special for the weekend? She said, no, my kids are coming home from summer camp today. And she said, I want to give something to all their female counselors. And another lady says, oh, lucky ladies. And another one says, oh, lucky boyfriends. And the whole bus just laughs. And the pastor says, it struck me in that moment when my grandparents were around. Not to say that it didn't happen. But it was socially taboo to think that outside of marriage that sex was happening. That outside of marriage, a guy would see a girl in her underwear naked before they got married. You know, he said, not that it didn't happen, but it was socially so out of place, they never would have joked about it at all, especially on a public bus where the whole bus laughed along. But look at our generation now. Marriage is no longer sacred. Not even in the church. The statistics are really no different from the church from the world about having sex before marriage. Even the Bible says clearly, thou shalt not commit adultery. Old Testament, New Testament. What is adultery? Adultery means any type of sex outside of the covenant of marriage. That means if you're in covenant of marriage, you have no sex outside of that covenant. And if you're not in covenant of marriage, there's no sex until you have a covenant of marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. But it's so taboo anymore. It's just taboo. How did that happen? Overnight? On November the 1st, 1972, no, it happened slowly over time because Christians moved to legalism or dualism. They let the culture of the city overtake the culture of the city of God, and that's where we are today. What is the message to that church? Repent. Well, pastor, I don't think that that's just like a weakness. It's not something I need to repent of. God says it's sin to let the culture of your city trump the culture of his city. So, I don't know how to sugarcoat it. It's not easy to say. It's not easy to hear. But friend, if you have drifted in one of those two places, I know two things. Number one, you don't think you have. Stop thinking about who in this room has and put your own heart under that microscope. Is that you? And what should your response to that be? You can ignore it and harden your heart, or you can listen to the Holy Spirit today and repent. I would strongly suggest the latter. Now, 
I'm going to just make a judgment call on the fly that I am not going to be able to finish it, this message this week. Is it okay if we pick up here next week? Okay, if it's not okay, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and listen, if you're nervous, next Sunday I'm dedicating, we're dedicating my son and four generations, or yeah, four generations of my wife's family is going to be here. Imagine preaching this to your great-grandfather or your mom. So I was kind of hoping for next week's message because it's about worship in Revelation chapter 4, but I guess I'll be stuck with Laodicea and Philadelphia next week. So. But for those of you that get really bent out of shape about not having the blanks filled in, I'll give you the blanks, okay? All right, the OCD people in the room? Yeah, you're welcome. The second one's kind of an encouraging one, right? So I'll give you the blanks and a sentence on each one and we'll close, okay? Number two, this is the letter to Philadelphia. One of the only two letters that there's no, nothing to correct, he says, I know what you're up against, and I have no fault against you. May that be what Jesus says over my life every day. And you know how it'll get that way is if I listen to the other five letters and avoid their mistakes, right? If I stay faithful and loyal to him, here's what he says. Here, here's my uh, one meaningful thought. Don't be discouraged when your loyalty to Jesus doesn't appear to produce visible results. Trust the rewarder and remain faithful. And we'll go through what happened with the church, but it, here's, in, a, in a nutshell, here's what he says. Listen, you're a church of little strength. What that really means, the Greek on that, you're a church that's not sending any attendance records. You, don't, you can't do movies in the park. You're not reaching people by the thousands. You're not as big as Sardis's church. You're not as well-known as, you're not as, your offerings are not even close to Laodicea's church. But I've got issues with them, not with you. No, you're not having 100 people get saved every week. You're not baptizing 25 new converts. You know what you're doing? You're remaining faithful to me. And when they drag you in front of courts in the face of persecution, you're not denying me. You're willing to go to your death rather than deny me. And none of these other churches are doing what you're doing. So I'm not going to correct you for anything. Instead, what I'm going to tell you is this. Don't be discouraged when the life that you're living doesn't seem to pay off in a life of comfort doesn't seem to pay off in church growth. doesn't seem to pay off in promotions. Don't be discouraged in doing what's right. I see and I know what you're doing. And friend, let me tell you specifically about what reward I have for you. And we'll talk about that next week. Point number three, little Laodicea. I was so excited about this one today, sort of in a weird sadistic way about a church that's being judged. But I was just excited about like I finally, this used to offend me so much. Because I'd hear pastors talk about this church, you know, you remember the indictment here? You're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And because of that, I'm going to spit you. Right, okay, we all know this one. We're all excited about it. Here's how I've usually heard this preached. I won't give you the ending, just the setup, the tease for next week. Congregation, this is, this is Jesus taking us to task for our spiritual temperature. He's saying, I want you all to be hot in your relationship with me. I want you to be speaking in tongues and walking on water and raising the dead and uh, in church, you know, 194 hours a week, you are there more than there are hours in the week. I want you memorizing the Bible. I want you preaching hellfire and brimstone on the tables of McDonald's. Or I want you to be cold. Because at least you're being honest about who you really are. But most of you are lukewarm. Pick one or the other because hot and cold are equally pleasant to me. That makes no sense. Why would Jesus say to all of us, I'm cool with you being cold towards me. That's delicious. Then what is the point? Isn't that ridiculous? 
but that's how it's usually taught. It's taught wrong. We're going to put on our first century ears next week, and we're going to really get what it was meant. But number three says, until you recognize your blindness, there's no hope for healing. That's, listen, that applies to a whole bunch of different things. Until you think you have a problem, we can't help you. Pastor, can you sit down and counsel me on something? Well, I'll take a swing at it. If I can't fix it in 30 minutes, I'm going to send you to Grizz or Tawny or somebody. Not a great counselor. I'm a pretty good listener, not a great counselor. But one of the things I'm trying to just, you know, spoiler alert. You ever want to come sit down with me for counseling? And there's, you know, there's, there's no shortage of those things. You're really at the bottom of the barrel if you're coming to me. But I will do everything that I can to listen and help us. I'm a pastor, right? But here's the one thing I'm trying to hear in that first 30 minutes. Do you even recognize that you are part of whatever problem you think you have? My wife's not here today, but I'm coming to tell you about how bad she is. I need you to help me fix her. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I got a handle on the problem already you don't want to hear. <laughs> Until you really think you're broken. Until you come to that unpleasant, unstomachable, glorious revelation that you're not perfect. The gospel will be meaningless to you. Being part of a body of believers who love you enough to not only celebrate you, but to come alongside you and say, friend, we're, here, we're about making disciples here and there's something I'm seeing in your life that's not consistent with being a disciple. Until you want that, at least this family, at least this family, will just be offensive and, and a nuisance to you. And replete through all these letters or warnings you think you're this way but i tell you you've misdiagnosed yourself he's saying to laodiceans you think you're really good at diagnosing sicknesses i'm bringing malpractice suit against you friend i don't ever want to be in that place where god and i disagree about who i really am the most important thing is that my view of myself equals god's view of me and some of us, if you're like me, my view of myself is usually going to be much worse than his view of me. And some of us, our view of ourselves is much better. It's both pride. It's pride on both sides of that equation. But let's learn from these letters to these churches. Friend, is it possible? Is it possible? That you're trying to go about your whole Christian life by crafting a re reputation. Your whole life is a Facebook filter. You've become a caricature of yourself. And you're living off a reputation when under the hood, you're empty. That you need constant reassurance when life, when life isn't the way that you want. That, that God's not angry at you. That he still loves you. Are you quick to blame others and slow to take responsibility? Can I encourage you to repent and get to know Jesus a little better today? If you're discouraged because you've been doing all the right things, you stepped up in your giving, you stepped up in your serving, you're sharing your faith like never before, but it doesn't seem to pay off, can I just encourage you, patient endurance and tribulation. The, another message through all the, I'm skipping ahead to next week, I'm so sorry, but somebody needs to hear this sentence. Revelation, Jesus doesn't promise us to take us out of tribulation, he promises to go with us through it. So don't think God hates you if you're going through trial and tribulation. It's all about protection for persecution, not from persecution. Not a great message. But look, if you don't have to face hell, everything less than that's a, hey, just an exercise, just a holding pattern until I get to my reward. It'll refine you if you let it. Can I just encourage you, hear the voice of the Lord today and respond to what he's saying to you. Our worship team's coming. As they come, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come as well. And I just want to pray for you. I want to give you a moment with every head bowed and every eye closed to ask this question. 
What is the Holy Spirit saying to me today? What's that one thing? To me, not to your neighbor, not to your spouse, not to your kids, to you. To you. About you. What's he saying to you? And how are you going to respond to what he's saying to you? What is he saying to you? How are you going to respond? I hope, I hope that somewhere in this room or listening to our podcast, watching on Facebook, I hope there's at least a few of you that you've made it this far into the message because at least you're curious. You're curious about the Bible. You're curious about church. You're curious about God. But you would, if you were totally honest, you'd say, I don't have that saved. I'm not saved like you described earlier, Pastor. I, I am nervous that if this is all true and there's an end coming that I'm not going to, when God comes to judge me, it's not going to be favorable. Friend, I want to offer you life today. I want to offer you life. But Pastor, those standards you were talking about, what he expects of the church, I'm nowhere close. How could Jesus love me? How could he make me new? There's so much work I'd need to do. No, that's another lie that's, that hell made up. We sang it earlier. We sang, we sang it in our worship song. He, he takes you just as you are. Just as you are. What does he want from me? You? Without holding back? He just needs you to admit that he exists. And confess, own up to, admit that you also believe what the Bible says, that his son Jesus was risen from the dead. And believe that you need him to be complete. That the life that you have right now isn't the life you're, that's just existing. That's not really living. And you really want to live. So you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to believe you need him and accept forgiveness for your sins. You have to own up to the fact that you're not perfect. That you've disobeyed God in the way that you've been living up to this point. And you surrender your life to him. That means he becomes the ultimate leader. That doesn't say, hey, I just want forgiveness, but I want to live my own way. That's dualism. You can't have that. You have to trust him enough that he's going to be your ultimate leader and trust that he's not going to lead you into, into paths that aren't for your best. If that's what you're ready to decide to do today, here's a little confession you can make right in your seat or while you're driving in your car or you're watching us on Facebook. This is the prayer that I prayed when I asked Jesus into my heart, and I would invite you to just join with me in this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe you exist, and I believe you rose from the dead just like the Bible says. I recognize my own brokenness and my own problems. I have chosen to live life my own way. And now I understand the definition of that is sin. I can't possibly make it right, but I am relieved to know that Jesus has already made it right by paying off my debt for me So Jesus, now I take you up on that invitation. I receive that payment to be applied onto my life. Thank you for forgiving me. And now I step off of the throne of my own life. And Jesus, I want you to sit in its place. I'm now your servant. You're my leader. Convert me, transform me, change me. Teach me how to really live, not just exist. Amen.